Welcome to the Assembly of Yahweh Sermon Podcast. We're so glad you're here. For more information, you can visit hallelujah.org or download the AOI app on Apple or Google Play. Today it's a little bit different. See, I have a, um, a concern about where the younger generation is heading in the world. You know, there's a... Um, if you go to college, if you go to public school, if you go to university there's at least a 60% chance, greater than 60% chance, that um, your biology professor is going to be self-professed, atheist, or agnostic. At least 60% of the biology professors in universities in America, now this is not in the rest of the world, this is in America, which is uh, we like to think just a little bit more pure, not quite as far as the rest of the world, but we've gone so far, you see. So I think it's uh, really incredibly dangerous that these professors are then going to start rubbing off on the students because you can't be unbiased in your belief system. Your belief system is going to come out as you speak about different issues. So these atheists who believe that everything just happened by chance, they are going to be teaching those students that we're all accidents. So I want to tell you up front, this is still a little bit rough. This is some research that I've been doing, but I'll give you a little sneak preview. I'm going to try to keep it really short, but we want to talk about how evolution requires a lot of faith, and specifically in the origin of life issue, the biology issue. Now, If you've ever had questions about some of these things on the screen, I hope to address them rapid fire today because these are real hot topics that atheists use to try to convince us and prove a naturalistic origin theory for life. Speciation, mutations, natural selection, adaptation, survival of the fittest, and spontaneous generation. You've heard some of these terms, but what we've heard is that we are backwards for believing what the Word tells us, that we believe in a Creator, and we believe in a Creator because we just don't understand how all of these things work. If only we understood about speciation and mutation and natural selection, well, then we would understand that we don't need anyone to create us, that it can all happen by chance, just given enough time. So, If we don't have a solid basis and we understand these topics, then we're going to be left saying, oh, well, uh, no, that's just not what the Bible says. No. No, we actually need to have a basis for our faith and understand how to address these questions. So if we dive into the very first, speciation, what you see on the screen uh, is a great variety of finches. And uh, these finches... um, There are many different types. They're all the same type of bird. But they vary in beak size, in the shape of their eye, in the colorations. All of these different things about finches are quite quite a variety. Okay, so Darwin took a trip down to the Galapagos Islands, and he proposed that species could vary over time. Now, he was right. That's what's called adaptation. So he said, well... If you position one of these finches, one of these birds, on a different island of the Galapagos, and it's more rocky down there, or maybe there are more nuts that it needs to crack, well, then the beak size will actually change slightly over time. So you have these tiny little variations within 
a creature, let's say the finch. But he went on to take a monumental leap and explain that, well, because we see tiny variations in creatures, then all you have to do is just give it enough time and a fish or an amoeba will turn into an ape, which will then turn into a man. So he took this great leap of faith, and that's the reason I call this a lot of faith. And he proposed what's known as universal common descent. What does that mean? You see, universal common descent was proposed by Charles Darwin, saying that an amoeba, given enough time, can turn into a man. Now, this was his proposition, and this is what he taught in his books, yet... I'm not so sure that he was um, confident in his theory. You see, he started to write down these notes, and he proposed that if you have point A, this, the number one there, say an amoeba, that that can turn into different creatures, and that's where all the branches of the tree comes in, and then you get creature B, C, D, and all of these things until mankind comes on later on. I don't know if you notice two words in his notebook when he's proposing this idea. It's pretty obvious. I think, all right, and we're going to see that he thought wrong here in a second. So while we do see minor speciation, there's a lot of variation within uh, animal kinds. I had a little video here. I don't think it's going to show for us, but uh, we can't forget that there's tons of variation in between all of the different kinds. Not just animal kinds, but plants as well. So you see, Darwin was proposing that a banana and a rose and a pine tree and a fish and an ape and mankind and a giraffe all came from one little single-celled organism, from an amoeba. Okay, what's interesting is that everything, including a banana and an ape, and us, we all use a universal genetic code called DNA, deoxyribonucleic acid. It's like the code of life. It's the blueprints that makes us who we are. Now, it's interesting to note that this either means, there's only two possibilities here. If evolution is true, then everything evolved using exactly the same mechanism, using a code called DNA. Over millions and millions of years... A banana would choose to evolve using the exact same code as a human. Now, how unlikely is that? And yet, that's what has to happen if evolution is true. I think it's far more likely that our creator, Yahweh, created a robust genetic code. He made the language of DNA truly spectacular, so complex, and then he said that he was going to use that language to create everything or all life on this planet. I think that's far more likely. So yes, we do see variation, a lot of variation between kinds, but what we don't see is change from one kind to another. These massive leaps from one type of an animal to another. Now, the excuse given by evolutionary theory is that, oh, well, the reason we don't see this, David, is because just give it a few more billion years. It'll happen. You just have to have faith. (laughs) <laughs> All right. But at that point, it's not science. It's a faith-based belief. You see, we do see variations, tiny changes, but we don't see the Canarysaurus rex, do we? <laughs> no. Even though evolution would tell us that dinosaurs turned into birds over millions and millions of years. 
<laughs> All right, we don't see that. What about this? Do we see this? A great dame? <laughs> no. <laughs> no, that's so silly that most people would laugh at that idea, yet evolutionists somehow believe that it might be possible given enough millions of years. Another thing we don't see, we don't see kangaroosters, do we? <laughs> But it, it really is that ridiculous. It requires a lot of faith. Speciation is real. You can have little species variation, but you cannot have major leaps between animal kinds, and certainly not an ape turning into a man. All right, so which brings us to the second point, and that's mutations. Now, this is a fun one. You've seen it in movies, you've read it in comic books, you know, somebody gets exposed to too much radiation and they turn big and green, or uh, they get bitten by a spider and they start climbing the walls. It's The possibilities are limitless in the movies. But that would be kind of neat if it worked in real life, wouldn't it? I mean, then evolution could be possible because you could get radical changes. Well, let's look at mutations. We've heard all about them. Mutations are one of the driving forces of evolution. Now, we do see mutations all the time. They are real. They happen all the time. The problem is you'll find things like a cow with an extra leg or a three-headed frog or a two-headed snake or... Some of these types of things. Now, do those creatures benefit from the mutations? If you have a, uh, a cow with an extra leg, is, is he going to last longer than the others? Or is he going to be kind of encumbered by that extra leg? If you have a, a two-headed snake, is he going to be able to work his way into the same little burrow that a one-headed snake would be able to? Absolutely not. He's going to be stuck. So he's going to die off much more quickly than the normal snake. So mutations happen all the time but they're typically not beneficial. Now, at which point an atheist would say, David, you're only talking about the really radical changes, these big changes that we can see. What about all the tiny little changes in DNA that add up over time? That could produce the evolution that we see. Well, let's take a look at that. In fact, let's look at Berkeley's top example in their Understanding Evolution uh, section of their website, Top example for mutations, it happens to be sickle cell anemia. <laughs> All right, now let's, why is that their top example? Maybe because they can't find a better one? All right, what is sickle cell anemia? Well, basically, it's a single substitutionary code in the DNA. So it's just one tiny letter change in our DNA code creates a potentially deadly disease. Now, because of the sickle shape of our cells, well... Sometimes, if you're in a malaria-stricken environment, you might not die of malaria, but your lifespan is going to be shortened. So they would say, oh, well, that's beneficial. They didn't die of malaria, but it's not. It's only beneficial in a very, very selective environment. Okay, so I don't think that that's a positive example of a mutation. Now, we need something really positive for evolution to take place. So Let's think about this one. What if a fish suddenly sprouts half legs or even entire legs? A fish, boom, all of a sudden the baby fish has fully functioning legs. Now we're cooking, right? Because we're one step closer to a human there. We've got legs. Except if a fish were to mutate fully formed legs, which is very unlikely, then what's it going to do with its legs? Those legs are not going to help it in the water. It's going to encumber it in the water, and the fish is going to be snapped up by larger fish because it can't move away from the other fish. 
Now, you might say, well, what if it decides to crawl up on land? So then the legs are going to be beneficial. Ah, wait a second. That fish might have legs, but it doesn't have a fully functioning lung system, a breathing mechanism, all of these other things that are needed for it to migrate to the land. So you could have a fish that sprouted fully functioning legs and it still wouldn't do that fish any good unless all of a sudden it could evolve another slew of features within hours or else that fish is dead. Okay, so that's pretty complicated. It doesn't seem to be working. Mutations seem to be harmful and not beneficial. But then when you get really specific and scientific, people will show you charts just like this and they'll say, you know what? Here's the thing. Good genes stay, bad genes go. Good mutations or positive mutations just kind of add up over time until you have an entirely different creature. And then the bad genes, well, they're just called out because the creature will die. That's not the way it works. Now, this is pretty interesting. It's a little bit technical, but I think we can grasp this because this is what the mutation curve looks like. What we were looking at before was a, a bell curve, a Gaussian curve. It's like half and half. Half good, half bad. Oh, no, that's not the way it works. You see the, the red over here in this, uh, in this gray box, this, this piece right there that just flashed. That is a bad mutation. Those are the bad mutations that fall within the no selection zone. What's the no selection zone? That means that those mutations are bad. They're negative, but they're not bad enough for natural selection to see them. In other words, they're fairly bad, but natural selection is not going to see that as being bad enough to kill the creature. So those mutations, negative mutations, are going to add up every generation that passes. Now what about the one to the left of that, this little red strip down here? Oh, those are also negative mutations. But those negative mutations fall past the no selection zone. That means that those are deadly. The creature is going to immediately die. All right, now... I don't know if y'all can see this. You see, um, there's a green speck on the screen. Can y'all see that? <laughs> That's the positive mutations. Those are the ones that won't kill you, it won't harm you, and uh, they're not necessarily beneficial, but they're not going to kill you, they're not going to harm you. All right, so it's vastly skewed towards the negative mutations. That's not a good start. So if mutations are one of the driving forces of evolution, and we've just seen that positive mutations are incredibly rare, then evolution can't take place. Now, if we observe a major mutation in nature, more often than not, it's harmful, at the very least unhelpful. They're unpredictable, and they're typically not beneficial. We're finding that evolution could never use mutations to produce new information. So to create something new, you have to have a new genetic code, a new instruction book of DNA. And mutations can't provide that. They just mess things up. They're real. So when you're challenged on this and you say, ah, you don't believe in evolution because you don't believe in change, you reject mutations and natural selection and speciation and all this, then you have to say, wait a second, wait a second. No, no, no. I believe in change. Change is real. But Darwinian evolution is a radical change from one kind of creature to another, and it takes a lot of faith. So we've looked at speciation and mutations, and we've seen that both have this modicum of truth. 
The Bible tells us that a little leaven leavens the whole lump. In other words, you can have a, a lot of truth in something, but then you throw in that lie and you start twisting it, and that's where things get grave. So mutations do take place. They're not evolution. Uh, speciation is real. We see minor adaptations within species, but no interspecies change, not change from one kind to another, which brings us to the big one, natural selection. All right, so I always tell people that natural selection is this false god of evolution. It is basically this rescuing device that is placed upon every atheistic theory. They say, Ah, well, you believe in a creator who forms you, and you believe that by faith. And I say, well, you believe that natural selection formed you, and you believe that by faith. So let's look at natural selection for a second. And let's sort of tie that into mutations, because they're very similar. Uh, Natural selection is supposed to be the driving force of evolution. It's found in the title of Charles Darwin's seminal work on the origin of species by means of natural selection. But what Darwin didn't know... He didn't have the technology that we have today. Darwin didn't know was that natural selection can't create brand new genetic information and has never been observed to do this. So many people tell us that natural selection and evolution are the same thing. And experts, PhDs sometimes will will perpetuate this lie. They'll say, well, natural selection is true, so evolution is true. They're not the same thing. So... Let's say that scientists develop an antibiotic that looks for, and this is really simplified, right? Uh, one of the most common proofs for evolution is antibiotic resistance in bacteria. So a lot of doctors and scientists say, listen, we see bacteria evolving to sort of trick the antibiotics. So that's evolution taking place. Well, here's what's happening. Simplified. These are little bacteria. And I've made my bacterium have four eyes. You see those? Okay, so we can visualize them. Now, if you create an antibiotic that targets only bacterium with four eyes, well, then it's going to kill all of these people, right? They're going to be gone. But this one poor thing, because of a mutation, has a droopy eye. So one of its four eyes, the antibiotic can't see. And so the antibiotic misses it. So as pitiful as this thing might be, It's got a little droopy eye there. It it can't help it. But it's going to survive in an um, antibiotic-rich environment because the antibiotic doesn't know to kill this one. So this thing is going to become the new king. All of the four-eyed bacteria are going to be dead, and this one is going to thrive. That's typically what a beneficial mutation looks like. It's something, it's, it's not beneficial, This creature is not as robust as it used to be. It's switched off a gene. It's turned off one of its eyes. And because of that, in a a particular environment, an environment where this antibiotic is applied, well, this thing is going to thrive. You take this thing out into the real world, you stick it out into a normal environment, and I'm thinking that the four-eyed bacteria are going to thrive better. So, has evolution just occurred in the previous example? No. Is the bacteria better than it was, or has it had a a negative mutation? It's a negative mutation. So, it's no in both cases. Although, as long as this antibiotic is around, it might thrive. The bacterium is not as suited for most environments. So, no increase of information has taken place. The bacterium didn't suddenly turn into an elephant, 
okay? It's lost useful information through mutations. So that's the opposite of what we need for Darwinian evolution. There's a process that some have called natural selection that is observable. There's some truth to it. It works with mutations, but it's not evolution. You need a lot of brand new genetic information for evolution to take place. And without that new increase of information, evolution can't take place. It takes a lot of faith to believe in evolution. Now, this brings us to adaptation. Because atheists will come up all the time. They'll say, David, you know, we see a lot of change taking place. Animals are changing. They're adapting. Well, evolution is defined as change, so evolution is true. That's a simple definition because Darwinian evolution requires radical change. Universal common descent. Molecules to man. And that's not what we're talking about here. Adaptation is a type of change that is real, observable, and we've done it many, many, many hundreds of times. Thousands of times. Millions of times. So how does this work? Basically, you have a dog, and let's say that uh, he's got short hair. You breed him with another, and let's say that she's got really long hair. Well, with the genes from both of those parent dogs, you can come out with long-haired puppies, short-haired puppies, anything in between. The genetic variety is there. But now, let's take this as an example, because as you do more selective breeding, you take just the short-haired puppies and you start breeding them together, well, then what you're going to get are only short-haired puppies. You can never get back to the long hair because those genes have been switched off, basically. It's observable. We do it all the time, breeding horses, breeding dogs, breeding all of these different things. You're getting more variety with each new breed, but not new information. Different expressions of the same information. In a wolf, you have all of this genetic information to create long-haired puppies, short-haired puppies, Great Danes, Cocker Spaniels, Chihuahuas, everything you can think of. But as you breed it, it's not an increase in complexity, which is what evolution needs. No, it's a decrease in complexity, more variation because this can split off and become a Rottweiler. This one can split off and become a chocolate lab. Yes, more variation, less complexity. The more time that passes makes evolution harder and harder to happen. Okay, now much of this is happening at the phenotype level. It's physical characteristics like the color of the dog's uh, fur or the length of its fur. It's not actually changes in the DNA. That's how most beneficial mutations are categorized in the phenotype level. It's physical. It's the shape of the eye or the, the, the tone of the skin, whatever you want to say. It's not actually changing the genetic code. It's changing how the genetic code is read. Now that's interesting because we need entire changes in the genetic code for evolution to work. Let me give you one more example. Adaptation. Cavefish. We've probably seen articles on the news or, or watched different uh, documentaries about cavefish that are sightless. You see, a cavefish can go into a cave and listen to what I'm about to tell you here because I'm about to use a word multiple times. See if you can figure out what it is. Cavefish go into a cave and they lose their sight. All right? Uh, because they don't need to see. It's dark in the cave. Now, cavefish go into a cave and they lose their scales because 
they're safe in there. They don't have to worry about big predators. Cave fish go into a cave and they will lose the function of their swim bladder. That's what allows them to go up and down long distances. Well, there's a shallow pool in a cave. They don't need to do that. Cave fish will lose their pigment, the coloration, because they don't have eyes. They don't need to see color, okay? That's a lot of loss, isn't it? It's not gaining anything. But here's what's interesting, because what they're doing is it's not evolution taking place. It's not radical change taking place. Cavefish go into a cave, and they start switching off pieces of their genome. They say, well, we don't need eyes. So they switch off the gene that gives them sight. They switch off the gene that gives them the coloration. They're switching off things because they don't need it in that particular environment. That's adaptation. But you could take a cavefish from cave one over here and a cavefish from cave two over here. Both of them are blind. But both of them switched off their eyesight using different genes. So you could go throughout your DNA code, you could just like reading your instruction manual, and you say, well, this, is, this one would cause me to go blind. Well, I don't need sight, so they switch that off to conserve energy. Well, this one over here, you go on down a little ways more, and then you see, well, this is the eyelid. Well, I could switch this one off. It would still cause me to go blind. I need to conserve energy. Uh, but it's two different spots in the instruction manual that cause those fish to go blind. So you can take this, ca- this blind cave fish and this blind cave fish, bring them back together. When they mate, within one generation, they can see again. That's because the DNA is so miraculous. It is so inspired by our Creator that it has self-repaired itself. It has basically repaired the two genes that switched off the site, and the fish can see again. That's pretty interesting, and it's not evolution. It's a lot of loss of information or switching off of genes, which can be switched back on. So interesting. Adaptation is minor change within kinds or within species, but it is not evolution. Evolution, upwards evolution, requires a lot of faith. Which brings us to survival of the fittest. Okay, so now this is related to natural selection, which we looked at a little bit uh, before. It's pretty simple. The sickly gazelle gets eaten, the healthy gazelle gets away, the sick gazelle is dead, and the healthy gazelle lives to reproduce using good genes. So theoretically, over time, the gazelle species as a whole, they're going to get faster and stronger and better, and the weak and sick are going to get weeded out. Well, is that evolution? It may be observable, but it's not evolution. Because that gazelle, although the gazelle population might remain fast and healthy, well, the more time that passes, those gazelles aren't going to get healthier and stronger and faster and then turn into a giraffe. And No, of course not. They maintain their current kind, just like our Creator formed them. So evolution requires the rewriting of massive amounts of brand new genetic information. You can't go from an amoeba to an astronaut just by changing uh, tiny variations, adaptation. You have to completely rewrite the manual. So survival of the fittest does not produce new information. It weeds out. That means that uh, evolution can't take place. And let me give you another example. Uh, This is hypothetical. You have a brown rabbit and a white rabbit, and they're going to go up to the Arctic Circle, all right? Now, they contain genetic information to produce many different colors of rabbits. You can have brown, gray, white, whatever. 
But what rabbit's going to do better in the Arctic Circle? Somebody tell me. The white, absolutely. Because why would that be? The brown one's going to be lunch. <laughs> yeah. Now, it's sad, but that's just the way it works. That's survival of the fittest. So the genes for the brown rabbit are not, not up in the Arctic Circle anymore. The white rabbit is doing really well. And uh, that's going to mean that you've got more white bunnies. White rabbits breeding with white rabbits, they're going to produce a lot of white rabbits. So it's weeding out information. Did evolution just occur? Nope. Nope. They're devolving. They're getting more selected, more selected, more selected, until finally their genetic code is stripped of all the useful information that could ever cause them to be anything else other than white rabbits. It's a simply an observable process that happens in nature, and it is not Darwinian evolution. Which uh, brings us to really our last point, because we've tackled speciation, we've tackled adaptation, we've looked at mutations, we've looked at natural selection, and we've looked at survival of the fittest. Those are, those are the kings of evolution. Those are the ones that are propagated by biology professors all over the world as the best proofs of evolution, and we've tackled them one by one and seen how they can never produce anything other than what Yahweh intended them to produce, okay? And that brings us to the last, spontaneous generation. Because there were ancient Greek philosophers in the ancient world, uh, Anaximander of Miletus and, and even Aristotle and others, who believed that life could spontaneously generate from things like mud, dead animals or moldy grain. That was scientific thought until around 1864 or even later. And that's going to be my final point. I'll get to that in a second. Even later. You see, people thought that they were using observational science when they believed this. They said, all oh, this makes sense. We have a piece of dead meat laying around there, and all of a sudden, flies and maggots appear. So the dead meat birthed flies and maggots, right? No, absolutely not. But that's what they saw. They didn't have the microscopic capabilities of studying these things. So they said, well, we're just using observational science. We see flies and maggots appear, so they are spontaneously generating from thin air. They're just appearing. Mud. Where there's a lot of mud, there's a lot of frogs. So they said, well, mud is creating frogs. You've got this lifeless mud, and all of a sudden, boom, here's a frog. Here's a frog. Look at all the frogs. So the mud is birthing the frogs. <laughs> it's ridiculous now. But even though they found that ridiculous, the idea that bacterial life could spontaneously generate remained. So finally they figured out. They said, okay, mud's not giving way to frogs, and dead meat's not giving way to maggots and flies. But bacteria, that's a different story because they didn't have the technology. So they said, well, okay, the others are ridiculous, but bacterium can still spontaneously generate. They can just pop out of nowhere. So experiments were attempted, and nothing was able to conclusively prove that a life force wasn't just making bacterium pop into existence until a Bible-believing creationist by the name of Louis Pasteur started doing experiments. He said, this is not consistent thinking, y'all. 
They say, well, if, if mud doesn't make frogs and if dead meat doesn't make flies, then why are we just being inconsistent in our thinking and saying that nothing creates bacteria? So he started doing these experiments. So he would place boiled broths in these flasks and he would keep some of the flasks open and then he would curve some of the flasks and then seal some of the flasks off. And then he would wait a few days. Well, after a few days, he noticed that the flasks with the open uh, top, the open neck, well, the bacterium would get down in there and it would start to grow bacteria. All right? But the ones that were sealed off wouldn't grow bacteria. So he said, well, bacteria are not just popping into existence. They're getting into the flasks that are open. He said, the bacteria aren't just magically appearing. And he effectively dispelled the idea that life comes from non-life. He was the founder of the law of biogenesis. He said life only comes from life. There's a lesson to be learned there. Atheistic science. Actually, the vast majority of scientists around the world still believe in spontaneous generation. You know, I said that it was believed until the 1800s or maybe later. It's believed to this day. Because... In evolutionary biology, you have to have a Big Bang 14 billion years ago creating coalescing matter into the planet, and then this hot molten planet sort of started to cool off, and then you had mud, and then the mud somehow turned into an amoeba. Life from non-life. Evolutionary biology, atheistic biology, absolutely requires what was disproven in the 1800s. Now that is being taught to our next generation, to young people today as science. The idea that life magically appears out of nothing. That you can take non-living material and just magically create life. All you have to do is give it that magic ingredient. Time. A lot of time. To me, that takes a lot of faith. A lot of faith to believe that. So... What we've been able to do is tackle the, the driving forces of uh, evolutionary biology one by one. And if you get these questions as you move forward in life, if a skeptic comes up to you and they start throwing these questions out, you are so backward because you just don't believe in any change, you can tell them, no, I absolutely do believe in change. I believe that creatures can adapt, that it was placed in their genetic makeup by Yahweh himself, the ability to make slight adaptations, the the shade of the skin or the length of the fur. I believe that mutations happen, and that's a lot of change, but it's negative change. You can tell them, I believe in survival of the fittest. If you can run faster, you're going to escape from the bear a lot better than someone who can't. But it's not evolution. Change is real, and it is not Darwinian evolution. Now, why is this so sad? Because this is taught as fact today. It's because of the fact that young people are being told that they're nothing more than cosmic accidents, the result of some explosion in space 14 billion years ago. We have the instruction book that tells us differently right here. In the beginning. All the, way, the whole history of the universe is right here. But when we see 22 veteran suicides every single day here in America, when we see teen suicide on the rise, when we see school shootings, 
when we see millions of abortions taking place, we have to realize that to the, the average person, to the world, that's just one animal killing another animal. That's the reason that Darwinian evolution is so dangerous. We need to understand that we are fearfully and wonderfully made in the image of our Creator and that He has a plan and a purpose for our life. This is a really short version of something that I'm working on, but I wanted to give you all a little taste of it today and go through some of the research that I've been, uh, been studying. So I appreciate you all letting us be here, and it's just such a blessing. Thanks.